Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. Live from Total Wines and More, happy birthday, Denny, our own uh, Denny, who is uh, currently out, is celebrating his 79th birthday today. This is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 258. Brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. This is Tom. This is Cash. This is Scott. This is Mark. This is Stan. This is Tony. This is Don. So today we are going to discuss the four most important factors that determine stamp collection value. And this is an article, right? That we're doing today? Yes, where where is the article from? I I chopped off the. Uh... Yes, you did. So the rest of us don't know. <laughs> uh, do me a favor, Stan. You have the actual article, right? Can you uh, say who the uh, writer was and where the publication was? It was Women's Day. Uh, the four most important factors that determine stamp collection. It's on Invaluable dot com, which is a world premiere auction and galleries. And it doesn't have an author for us. So it's probably a staff writer. So invaluable.com? Invaluable.com. Shout out to them. So since the first modern postage stamp was implemented in 1840, a diverse range of unique collectible stamps have flooded the market, each detailing a specific person, place, and historically relevant moment in time. Stamp collecting has become a prominent hobby, and Lynn Stamp News estimates that 5 million people in the U.S. alone collect stamps. From the likes of the late President Franklin Roosevelt to young children. Because so many stamps have been produced worldwide, avid stamp collectors, also referred to as philatelists, are well aware that only the rarest stamps hold significant value. Experts carefully study factors such as condition, age, and rarity to determine stamp collection value. Below are ways in which you can briefly identify and evaluate the significance of your stamps. So section one is a brief history of postage stamps. Postmarks were invented by Henry Bishop, a postmaster general of England. They were first used at the London General Post Office in 1661 and are often referred to as the Bishop Mark. In 1680, William Dockra and his partner, Robert Murray, established the London Penny Post, which delivered letters and small parcels inside the city limits for one penny. Confirmation of the paid postage was indicated by the use of a hand stamp, and this is largely accepted as the world's first postage stamp. Sir Roland Hill from England is credited with inventing the first modern adhesive postage stamp. He also established uniform postage rates which were based on weight. They were first issued at Great Britain's Penny Post in 1840, with the issuance of the Penny Black featuring an engraved profile of Queen Victoria's head. This remained on the stamps for the next 60 years, and the United Kingdom remains the only country to omit its name from the postage using the reigning monarch's head as identification instead. 
The postage stamp and system of mailing was soon adopted by other countries around the world, each creating their own version and stamp designs. By 1847, the post office department issued its first United States postage stamp. Understanding the concept for which a stamp was issued is crucial in determining where you should be placed, where yours should be placed in terms of value and date within the entire collection. There are a few key components to look for when assessing a stamp. Determine the country and date. First, determine the country that your stamp came from and when. Most stamps should have this information printed on them. The Scott Specialized Catalog of Postage Stamps is a great resource for the U.S. postage stamp identification. For actually, for, well, the U.S. specialized, but there's also the specialized for the rest of the world, so. Look for an inscription. While some stamps don't display the country and currency, they have inscriptions, letters, words, and numbers that are part of the stamp design. A simple internet search for the inscription on your stamp can help easily identify a stamp's country of origin. For example, a cert is written on stamps from Peru. Pay attention to the watermarks. Watermarks often appear on paper used in stamp printing, and they can, easily, and they can be easily detected using watermark fluid. Simply place your stamp face down into a watermark tray, add a few drops of fluid, and wait for it to dry. Once it does, you can study the designs, letters, numbers, and pictorial elements of the watermarks to help identify your stamp's origin. Major stamp catalogs provide individual listings for stamps of similar designs printed on paper with different watermarks. Not all stamps are printed on watermarked paper, and those issued after 1917 do not have watermarks. The last U.S. posted stamps to bear watermarks were issued in 1938, so those, so those act as a valid determinant for the age of your stamp. Well, first of all, you don't wait for the watermark fluid to dry before by de to detect a watermark. It usually has to be wet. Yep. And so and that's one thing they kind of misspoke uh, on. And also they make it sound much easier than it actually is. We have a whole podcast on us discussing this. Yes. Yes. And um, not all stamps, contrary to what this kind of would indicate, not, not nearly as many stamps as you might think have the date printed on them. Yeah. Usually it's a date of a commemoration or a date of an event or something like that. And in that case, yes, historically, you can, it makes it a lot easier because they're commemorated usually in multiples of 25 uh, years or, you know, uh, 5, 10, 20, 25, 50, 75, 100, 150, 200 uh, years to uh, commemorate an event. Um, but it, And it depends on the event. But if you get the picture, get a picture of some guy, uh, yeah, you, it might be easy to figure out who it is, but it may be difficult to determine when it was issued. And depending on what catalog you're using can depend on what the order of the listings are, and it may be harder to find in some catalogs than they are in others. I know the Scott catalog likes to list definitive sets, which are basically like workhorse. They don't really commemorate anything. They just kind of, they're the workhorse stamps. And so there's usually a number of values in a similar design theme. And uh, but they'll lump them together, and they might lump them together uh, stamps that were issued over a ten-year period. And so, trying to find a stamp issued in 
1978 uh, might actually be listed as far back as maybe 1970 or 1968 in a set that was a long-running set, and they just added it in as a value in that set. So sometimes you have to search the catalog, or and sometimes they break up these long-running definitive sets into multiple um, smaller listing sections. So you might have a chunk of the listings in 1970 and another chunk in 1977, because the first one will go from 70 to 76, and then the second one will go from 77 to 80, and there might be a third one where they added a few more. <laughs> so you get the idea. They, they could be bounced all over the catalog and hard to find because they don't show a, an example of the stamp at the top of that listing. They just refer you back to the original listing. And so flipping through a catalog looking for a picture may not be the easiest thing to do. Well, and also sometimes, um, especially some of the foreign stuff, you'll find, oh, there's the design. This looks exactly like it. You won't also then know that there could be five pages later reprints of that design or, yeah. you know, different perfs or something like that. So you just go, ah, this is it. And it's the very first one. I mean, there, like you're saying, there could be 10 more that are 5, 10, 20 pages later. Well, the other thing, at least in the Scott catalog, they don't, um, for the specialized catalog, they generally list and show every uh, commemorative issue, a, a visual image of it. But for the foreign listings, the non-U.S. listings, a lot of times they'll list a representative stamp from the set. And so your stamp may have common design elements, but it won't be the stamp they show. And so you're really, when you're flipping through the catalog, you're looking for uh, an image that has common design elements, not necessarily the exact stamp that you have. And then you have to look at the set and read the little descriptions. It's, oh, well, this value is this subject, and this value is this subject, and this. And so your, yours might be buried somewhere in that set. And so it, it can okay, be a just challenge as, Just as a note, um, I'm going to edit this down a lot because, again, we're discussing how to determine the value of a stamp, not how to identify it. Well, you have to identify it to determine the value. Right, so but we're talking too much about identification. Well, that's up it to was, you. It was the section called how to identify. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. We, we've discussed, and I've monopolized yes. that, so continue. There was a discuss. <laughs> <laughs> so I've discussed it, everybody. No, oh, no, no, no. No, I was going to. Just real quick, real I quick. What I want to do is this is going to be this is, you know, I'm going to edit all this stuff out. But uh, for the podcast, it's going to be different from the YouTube because the YouTube is going to be very concise. People want to get the information on value versus determination. And so we're going uh, everything we may record for 45 minutes. This is going to be maybe a 10 to 15 minute. Uh, YouTube when it's all done and said. So just FYI. That's how I'm going to yeah, edit it Yeah, most of up. the discussion's going to go away. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> but if, you, if you're talking about identification, and Scott, what you said earlier was um, like the famous Americans that started in the mid-'80s that, you know, Chester Nimitz, all of those. There's like 16 different pages of those. Oh yeah, they they shotgun those in the book. <laughs> They're scattered all over the place. 
Well, but that was my point. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes uh, you know, finding a catalog listing is not as easy as it sounds. No, and it it's no. the number one problem when I see people's collections is they will get a Scott's catalog and they will find the Civil War stamp, the three cent Washington stamp that was issued in eighteen sixty one. So they see the picture, and then they look, and you have the one center and then the three center. And the three center catalogs eight hundred and fifty dollars, and there's a variety that catalogs three thousand five hundred dollars, and they go, well, it's worth a minimum of eight fifty, but it could be worth three thousand five hundred. That's number sixty four, and then number sixty five is like on the next paragraph up at the top of the page, and it catalogs for a buck and a quarter, and it doesn't have an image, and it doesn't have an image, <laughs> so there are the same designs. That have different values. And if you don't understand the difference between pink and rose. Yes. And especially when. To the untrained eye, rose right. can look very much like pink. Well, and pink doesn't look pink. It's not pink like Valentine's Day card pink. No. It's more like a reddish pink and a not very rosy rose. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, I finally found a pink. 64B, and I've seen more 65s in my lifetime than I've seen 64s. I think everybody has. Yep. <laughs> well, I have uh, one last thing to add as far as identification. Two simple words. Foreign stamps, Google Translate. <laughs> I, have, I have used it extensively on um, Chinese stamps. Take a picture of the stamp put the image in Google Translate and try and, you know, be able to make sense of the words or vice versa if it's not something that's issued in the Scott having a Chinese catalog taking a picture underneath it and going, "Okay, what does this say about the stamp?" So, yeah, Google Translate can very much be your friend in identifying uh countries. It's really tough when it's not even the same alphabet. Oh, yes. <laughs> Right, like you said, Chinese symbols or Cyrillic. You're going, what the heck? Yeah, the, ru the Russian, Russian stamps. Yeah. Well, we're going to move on to determining your stamp collection value. Once you've identified your stamp, you can better determine its value. Both the Scott Specialized Catalog of United States Stamps and Stanley Gibbons stamp catalog display photographs and price valuations sorted by date of issue. You can also refer to price guides, which are usually sold at philatelic shops. While these guides provide a great estimated value, they generally refer to stamps that are above average condition, so it's important to evaluate stamp collection value based on the criteria below. Centering. Assessing centering is the first step in evaluating your stamps. Stamps with nearly equal margins are considered more visually appealing and thus typically sell for more. The design should be balanced in relation to the other parts of the stamp such as the margin and vignette. Stamps that aren't centered well are, were misaligned during the perforation process during printing. A slightly misaligned sheet may result in perforations being close to the, close to the design on one or two sides. It's important to note that stamps from 1857 were originally designed as imperforates 
and because the margins are virtually non-existent, the perforations often touch the design, even on well-centered examples. Next is condition. The condition of your stamp is one of the most important factors when determining stamp collection value. Expert collectors understand that perforations missing, faded colors, paper flat, and other imperfections greatly diminish stamp value. Stamps are generally graded on a scale from superb to below average in reference to the stamp design. Superb, these stamps are of the finest quality. They have near perfect centering, brilliant color, and perfect gum. Or perfect cancels. Or perfect cancels. Light cancels. Nice, non-obtrusive cancels. Fine. These stamps are without noticeable flaws, have average centering, light hinge marks, yet aren't quite as fresh as those defined as superb. Uh, I take umbrage with the definition of fine. Yeah. Good. These stamps are noticeably off-center, but still fairly attractive with minor defects, thin, thin areas, and heavy hinge marks. Anything below good isn't worth acquiring for senior collectors. However, beginner collectors sometimes use them as a starting point, referred to as space fillers. Terminology we've never used on this podcast. <laughs> as, with most, as with most collectible stamps, values decrease depending on the number of tears, creases fading and other aesthetic issues that are present i we get uh pictures sent to us of stamps saying you know i found this stamp is it valuable and it'll be a stamp that may have like a just today got one the corner was totally missing it was about 90 percent of a stamp and i wrote back and said not only is it a common stamp but even if it was a rare stamp in that condition it would have to be an extremely rare stamp for it to have value because people just don't want ugly stamps in their collections. Well, think, think about this. If you collect, say, art glass, do you want a vase with a huge piece missing out of the top? No. So <laughs> why would you put a stamp with a piece missing in your collection? Or you collect cars and you buy cars that have been in auto accidents or something like that. that <laughs> yeah, there you it's go. It's the equivalent, yeah. Yeah. Be like buying a uh, 1964 Mustang with uh, being all rusted out and no engine. Yeah. And no wheels. <laughs> Maybe not. But I, uh, the reason yeah. I said I take umbrage with their definition of fine is they list light hinge marks. And that, to me, is a completely not true while it does affect your value it doesn't necessarily affect your condition your condition yeah you know uh, you can you can have a superb 98 or gem 100 stamp that is hinged or previously hinged yep right and the the catalog usually at least on uh earlier stuff um pre-19 around pre-1935 for most countries um actually lists values for different for uh, never hinged versus hinged hinged gum, so that really doesn't fall into the grading part as the value is already accounted for in the catalog. Right. Yeah. So that's that. That was kind of the part I took uh, took umbrage with is them saying hinge marks will affect your mm. condition. It's not a that's not a condition. It's well, it's the it, gum it, condition, it, and yes, it does affect the price of the stamp, but it is not decrease its condition per se right. right well it's like being used 
being used and being hinged and being never hinged are considered conditions that are standalone on their own. Correct. Now, if you have gum faults, yeah, gum skips, things like that, then yeah, well, and you your could, gum you can could, you could argue that a, a stamp with three hinge remnants on it is not going to be as a attractive a purchase as a stamp with a one single very light hinge mark. Right. So in that respect, the degree of hinging can affect the condition. Right. But um, never hinged is in a category by itself. So let's go ahead and skip this part because we just spoke. We just addressed it. Gum. Yeah. Well, barely. Okay, you want to go? Do it. Uh, I'll, go I'll read it, and if we decide it's too much, you can cut it out later. Okay. After condition is the gum. Stamp gum is the glue found on the backside of the stamp. The highest valued stamps have perfect gum that is still original, undamaged, and in the same state as when it left the post office. This is often referred to as mint never hinged. Generally, the following conditions describe the grade of a stamp's gum. Mint. Stamps with full, undamaged, original gum as sold by the post office. Unused. Stamps whose original gum has been damaged, often through the use of stamp hinges. Unused without gum. Stamps which have lost their original gum. Yeah. Yeah. Is is mint and, is mint and unused more of a non-U.S. terminology? I would say so. Be. I would say so. Yeah, it has to be. I mean, because we we I consider. I think this is an English we, article. Yeah, because we consider mint anything with original gum. Well, we consider mint. mint as anything unused. Yeah, even without gum. Right. So we might say mint no gum, or we might say mint. Uh, P O G. Part original gum or yeah. mint no. Um, Disturbed. The, mint hinged. Mint never hinged. Yeah. Yeah. Mint, no gum is issued. As a matter of fact, when I, and uh, Tony, you'll probably comment on this too. When I sell stamps on eBay, I will list mint and then mint, no gum, whatever. If I say unused, it automatically pretty much means no gum. And I'll describe it later. Unused is mint, no gum. How do you describe your stamps? Um, I do, uh, of course, non-hinged and uh, mint-hinged. I'll do light-hinged. Um, I will, I will put mint very light-hinged, and that's. I usually explain it's not hinging. There's a disturbance to the gum, but with our limited uh, lingo, uh, you know, you have tropicalized gum. You've got a little smuts, but it wasn't a hint. Um, you have the drop downs now on uh, eBay. You have to use, uh, and they have MNG there, mint no gum. That's a really, really good point. Yeah, we've just discussed prior that uh, mint hinged may not have been hinged. It might have just been mounted in such a way where the gum got disturbed. Right. Which, so technically you're talking mint unmounted or mint mounted. Yeah. Which is, I, I know that's one of the ways that the, the British describe their stamps. Yep. 
Instead of using hinge, they use mounted. Because it really does. It covers the, the what could be considered hingeless mounting. Yeah. You know, stamp mounts and things like that. So I would say the market demands right now that if you put MNH, mint never hinge, uh, it's got to be perfect. Yeah. I mean, perfect. Next. Next portion is rarity. There are various factors that determine the rareness of a stamp, which often require philatelist and expert opinion. Stamps that have errors in printing, content, and perforation are considered rare, as those are limited issue stamps where only a small number exist. Auction price databases are helpful sources in determining how often a stamp appears on the market. Rare stamps are becoming increasingly hard to find since collectors are continually adding them to their private collections. Well, I have, and again, I'm going to flip off my stamp collector hat and put on my economist hat. Instead of rareness, because rareness has to do with supply. And everybody who went to school knows it's supply and demand. So a rare stamp could be very common, but there's not a lot of demand for it. Like, let's make pretend we have this make-believe stamp that there's only a thousand of them printed. Or, excuse me, let's take it back. There's a hundred of them printed. Well, if it's from the country of Paraguay... And there's there's only... 30 collectors of Paraguay. Everybody could have three of them if they wanted it. So... Obviously, it's not going to carry a large value, even though it's a rare item. Right. Whereas a rare stamp, the inverted Jenny, of which there are 100 of, there are exactly 100 of them, is an incredibly valuable stamp. However, there are many, many, many stamps in the United States uh, collections that exist in numbers lower than 100. I have a bunch myself. Yeah. There are a lot of rare stamps. The hitch is to find a rare stamp that also has a high demand. I think the, I think popularity is the word that is applicable here because, uh, and that's the that's the one word that they're missing out of this whole this whole uh, um, listing is a popular stamp is 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 going to you know get you much more value than in stamps that are unpopular. Yeah, and it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be anything about rarity. Like for example. A stamp collection that runs 1970 to 1990 will be much less interesting to a, a stamp dealer than a stamp collection that's 2000 to 2020. Yeah. Yeah, you are correct. Well, yeah. People stopped buying when the post office, the more, that, the more stamps the post office pulls out, the more frustrated collectors tend to get because it costs them more to collect one of everything. Well, in addition to that, a lot of times you can't collect one of everything. But just well, as an example, the... And um, the dealers don't buy it because, first of all, there's not the collectors don't want it necessarily. And if the dealers don't buy it and the collectors don't buy it, then when the stamp goes off sale, there's not a huge inventory. Yeah, because, the people who want it already have it, and the people who don't have it either don't want it. Now, 15 year, 10 years down the road... You have a whole bunch of new people who may want it, and there's no inventory, and that's going to drive the price up. Yes. Well, one of my favorite examples, and this was just in a publication. Actually, it was a couple months ago, but I read it late. 
they were talking about the Honduras black airmail stamp. And there were 50 of them printed. Yeah, I think there were only three known. Yeah, there's only like three known, but there were 50 printed. And it, I, I'm not sure if three is the correct number, but it's really, really, really low. These stamps uh, sell for between $10,000 and $15,000 each. The record was like $20,000 or something like that for one of them. So a stamp that has 33 times more stamps, the inverted Jenny. Inverted Jennies right now are going for like several hundred thousand dollars. And there's 30 times more of them. So rareness is rareness, but you also have to have that demand factor on it. Like Mark said, he has many stamps that are incredibly yeah, private rare. Private proprietaries that are, that are known less than 100. Yep. I've got like about a dozen or so that are less than 100. And, and I'm not getting, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they're not cataloged at $100,000 now. And I have, uh, because I collect, you know, the 1851s and 1857s, I have some incredibly rare cancels mm -hmm. that are known in less than 25. So I have a bunch of them. I have a bunch of them, but they are, you know, not as highly demanded. So, yeah, yeah. it's rarity is great. But if you don't have the demand, the rarity do doesn't translate into the really, really big bucks. So if you have a collection that is really neatly prepared um, and it's uniform, all the mounts are all the same, uh, everything is nice and clean. If you've got modern stamps, they have, you know, the, the nice selvage around them and so forth versus a collection that's like haphazard, different style mounts, um, stuff mounted off to the side of the page. Just the attractiveness alone um, will add... Uh, value to the collection, even if the stamps themselves are not particularly rare. And another thing there, which I have seen a lot of is a person will get stamps from a stamp collector and they will have a book of stamps and they will have a cigar box crammed full of stamps. Well, the book of stamps is you, you trust the stamp collector. He probably knew what he had. So he put the good stuff in the book of stamps. The cigar box was probably junk that he had left over. So generally speaking, and I know if, if somebody digs up my stamp collection in 100 years, you will be able to see what the valuable stuff is because I treated it a certain way. And you will see what the common unvaluable stuff is because I treat it a different way. So if you get a book of stamps, which... Again, this is real life. I have seen this many times. It'll be stamps hinged onto the back of a sheet of notebook paper. Well, the notebook paper shows that the person didn't have a lot of value. They didn't pay a lot for these stamps, and they didn't pay anything for the mounting of it. So if the worse that stamps are treated, it tends to be that that's the un popular that's the not valuable part of whatever they had now if, if even even if it is the valuable stuff though i would be more disinclined to think it's in good condition because if you're just mounting it to like notebook paper how much care of them in general did you take oh yeah so even if they but. are expensive 
But if it's a kid's collection that they started with when they were seven, eight, nine, ten, um, and they didn't have a lot of money, but they had notebook paper and they had hinges, and they hinged it, you know, as cool show and tell. Yes, it could be. It could be their most valuable possession at that age. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The hitch, though, is that if you're looking for rare and valuable stamps. Rare and valuable stamps are rare. And so you probably a seven year old kid probably isn't going to find them. You know, you could they could be there. It's a treasure hunt. Always look. It's always worth sending a picture to me or PSE or the PF or who the APS or whatever. But don't expect a seven-year-old's collection to have grand value because they would have gotten the items from common sources and common sources generally have common stamps. Yes. Uh, and yeah. And rareness and value to, yes, it would not probably be in a seven-year-old's collection no. at all. As a matter of, you know, you know, a funny thing that we were talking about today, um, we were talking about going to antique shops and looking at their postcards. And I will tell you that I have found a couple, but they're big finds. I will go through the exhibit postcards because, you know, the exhibitions, the uh, Colombian World's Fair and the New York World's Fair and stuff like that. And the postcard dealers will look at this front of this uh, postcard and say, oh, this is, you know, the Chicago World's Fair. This is worth $10. And I'll look through it and go, no, it's not worth $10. This has the stamp with the exposition cancel on it. This is not a $10 postcard. This is a $150 postcard. That is a place where you definitely will find stuff like that. If you are a treasure hunter, finding items that cross categories, that cross collect. And that happens all the time in stamp collecting. I just put up a bunch of uh, vehicle uh, registration stamps. Uh, what are those? Oh, RVs. RVs yeah. RVs, yeah. And the RV stamps, you know, they catalog from $5. The really rare ones are like 12 bucks. Mm -hmm. But you get one that registered a 1956 Hudson Hornet. <laughs> and all of a sudden you have a $75 stamp, but it's not the value of the stamps. It's the value of the car that the stamp registered. And I put up a bunch of those. I, I actively seek those out because a 50 cent stamp that you, you know, catalogs 50 cents, you may buy it for 25 cents, but if it has a good car, a Packard or something like that, all of a sudden that, that stamp there's a 25 cent stamp sells to a car collector and he pays you 10, 15 bucks. So a duck stamp signed by Dick Cheney that has <laughs> blood splatter of his friend on it. <laughs> or a first day cover signed by um, Dwight Eisenhower. Yep. Actually there was a collection of signed duck stamps. And I forget who signed it. I think it was Eisenhower. And they went for 
huge amount of money because again, it was Eisenhower's duck stamp. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it was Eisenhower or somebody else, but you know, the signature on it is worth far, far more than the actual stamp itself. Right. <laughs> but there are, I mean, I've got a quarter of first day cover of the U S army stamp, but it has Patton's autograph on the first day cover. Oh, so, yes. So it's, you know, it's not the, it's not the stamp or the cover. It's the rarity of the autograph. Yep. So in determining the value of a collection, a dartboard works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in determining All the Scott. Yeah. In determining the value of a collection, there are a lot of factors that are involved. But one of them that should really quickly disqualify a stamp a stamp collection as being valuable or not valuable is where it came from, how it originated. If it came from a seven-year-old person, there might be some rare items in it, but don't count on it. If it came from an actual stamp collector and he treated it well and it's well-presented, then there probably is value in it because that's how stamp collectors collect. Well, the other thing is if if somebody knew the collector... If you knew they spent money to buy stamps, then there should be some value there. If it's from a collector who never spent any money on collecting stamps, i.e. a young a child or, you know, maybe somebody who, who didn't have any money to spend on stamps but still enjoyed collecting them, uh, then the collection is gonna be worth a lot less. You know, this goes into a different topic which a person asked us a while ago. Scott, how are multiples priced and valued well that's a good question because you can look in the scott catalog and they give values for a lot of things but one of the things that um is really kind of a a pain in the butt is um like in the washington franklin era you know you get a block of four stamps just a random block of four from the middle of a sheet what is it worth is it worth Four individual stamps? Is it worth more? Is it worth less? Well, if you look at the hinged value and you look at the block of four value, which is first all four stamps being hinged, then it's generally more. How much more? Is generally about five to ten percent more. So if you if you have a stamp that's worth twenty-five dollars and you have a block of four, it's $100 plus 10%. So $110 is a good point for that. Now, what happens if they're never hinged? Well, the catalog doesn't give a value for a never hinged block of four. It only gives the hinged block value. And that's assuming that all four stamps are hinged. So if you have one or more stamps in the block, let's say all four stamps are never hinged. So now you have a never hinged price of... $50 a stamp. Well, now your block is $200 plus 10%, so it's probably $220 to $225 for a block of four. Well, what happens if only two of the stamps are never hinged? Yeah, that's the biggie that comes up. Okay, so figure it this way. Figure two stamps never hinged at $50 a piece is $100 plus two stamps never hinged or two stamps never hinged at 50, two stamps hinged at 25. 
So your block value is $150. Now, instead of adding, you can add, like I said, usually anywhere from 5 to 10%. So in this case, since it's a mix, I would go with the 5%. So you can say, okay, well, maybe it's worth 160 bucks or 165 bucks, somewhere in that range. So it's going to be a little bit more than the four stamps valued. So it's going to be more than the $100, $110 that a, a fully hinged block is, but it's going to be less than the never hinged block. So you do have to take into account plate blocks are different because some plate blocks are rarer. Uh, if you have a plate block of six stamps and one stamp out of the six is never is hinged, well, you now you have five never hinged stamps. Well, you obviously can't call the plate block never hinged, but it's worth more than what the hinged price in the catalog is. So now you have to figure out, okay, is the hinged price for the plate block more than if I added up the singles and gave it a little percentage for being a multiple? So you kind of have to do a little bit of math to figure it out. Yeah, that's the biggie is what happens when – and your exact example – one of the stamps or the two top stamps of the plate block of six are hinged. So the plate block is hinged, but the stamp with the plate number and the three stamps around it are never hinged. Is it worth more to keep as a plate block or is it more to bust up? And you have to kind of add up the numbers and see where they came up. Well, you also have to look at the market. Is there a market for the plate block or is there a, is it a rare plate number Yeah, where you can actually get more than what the catalog lists for that? So, um, I mean, what if you split off the three stamps right next to the salvage and you got a plate number strip of three, which may be get valued in the catalog if there's an imprint. A lot of those are. Now you have a never hinged imprint strip of three and three single stamps which may be worth quite a bit more than a hinged plate block of six and honestly from what i'm seeing right now in the marketplace and this isn't you know this isn't a guarantee that it's going to continue like this forever or even till next month but right now people collect singles much more than they collect plate blocks right and plate number singles are actually kind of popular oh very popular but the, the blocks, blocks of four and uh, plate number blocks, plate number strips are out of favor at the moment. Well, one of the big reasons why so many blocks of four exist is because in the 1920s and 1930s, they didn't have good hingeless albums or ways to store hingeless stamps. And so people would collect blocks of four and you would Oops. you can find these old albums for blocks of four. And the whole idea was you hinged them into the album. So the top two stamps were hinged and everything. But the bottom two stamps were pristine. Uh, they were as issued by the post office. And that was the way for you to save mint never hinged perfect stamps. And when you find hinged stamps where the hinge obviously is like at the far left or far right part. It probably was hinging a block in because this was a very, very popular way to collect stamps to maintain the never hinged status of the stamps. Today, most of those blocks of four collections have all been busted up into singles. 
But again, you know, a block of four, and it's exactly what Scott was saying earlier. The top two stamps are hinged. The bottom two stamps are never hinged. How do you value it? You kind of value it by busting it into four separate stamps. Or six. Or, or eight. Or however big the block is, yeah. Um, there is still some market for the uh, 19th century plate blocks. Yep. I wouldn't bust those up oh, willy-nilly. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, but once you start getting in, in a little bit into the Washington Franklins, but definitely 1920 and later, um, plate blocks are much more out of favor. Um, and, and after the war... After World War II, uh, a lot of people uh, saved sheets of stamps as a way as an investment, and so that's one of the reasons why a lot of stamps from the '50s, '60s, and '70s are extremely plentiful in the market. Whereas once you get into the '80s, '90s, and 2000s, um, many, many, many fewer sheets were saved, and so those stamps are much more difficult to find, and that's why some of them carry. Uh, you know, a little bit better value in relation to their face. And just as a note also, we're talking about sort of the modern era, like 1920 and past. If you go to the stamps of the 1800s, they're going to list in the catalog how much a block of four is and a strip of three in pairs and stuff like but, that. But they're not going to list never hinge prices for those in a lot of cases. Well, the plate yeah. blocks, they might. Well, you're but, not going to find plate blocks for, you know, U.S. number 11 plate block. <laughs> but but the whole thing is is that when it lists it in the catalog, go by the catalog price. We're, we're talking about stamps that do not get listed in the catalog. Hold on. You guys are shaking your head. Is a plate no, block would, U.S. Was, number 11 plate just, block listed? I was just mimicking Scott, that's all. <laughs> oh, okay. Because I have, I have a U.S. number 11 partial plate block because it's supposed to have eight stamps and it's only got six stamps. But uh, mine is one of the three that they know of, so... <laughs> they're rare. I, I don't think they're uh, listed. No, I, I don't think I they're. would be impressed if it was. Well, that'll about wrap us up today. Join the podcast. A lifetime membership is only $10. We need your help to keep us going because nothing on the internet is free to do, including setting up all our wonderful new phone connections. Include your APS membership number as well, because we are an APS-affiliated club. Our address is P.O. Box 539-309, Henderson, Nevada, 89053. Your support is very much appreciated. You've been listening to Stamp Show here today, episode number 258. This was Tom. This was Cash. This was Scott. This was Mark. This was Tank. This was Tony. It's gone. And did you want to mention something about the Stamp Club? Oh, yeah. Hold on. Stay. Okay. P.S. P.S. All right. Um, on Facebook, there's the Virtual Stamp Club, whose president is Lloyd DeVries, who's also the president of the American First Day Cover. Every Sunday... We have a virtual stamp club meeting on WebEx, and you are welcome to join it. Just check out the Facebook page. Yeah, the Facebook page will give you a little uh, link to type in with a password. We'd love to see everybody there. It is really fun. I enjoy it. Uh, it's 1 o'clock Pacific time for me, which is perfect. It's 4 o'clock Eastern time. And uh, we have which a, is perfect. Yeah, which we have a lot of really good people who log in and talk to. Yeah, it's a great, 
dealers, collectors, every revenue collectors to early U.S. collectors and a lot of postal history. It's fun. Please, everybody, give it a shot. You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.